Hi, this is Yitz Greenberg. <coughs> I'm here to read to you my Dvar Torah on Parshat Mishpatim. The title is The Book of the Covenant, and that is indeed what Mishpatim as a parsha is about. What is the covenant method? The Lord recruits human beings, as in the universal Noahide covenant in Genesis, to become allies, later become full partners in repairing the world. At Sinai, the Jewish people were established as lead partners and ultimately ambassadors to the world in this process of redemption. The messianic vision of Tikkun Olam includes filling the earth with life and repairing the world so as to overcome all enemies of life, such as poverty, oppression, war, and sickness. The utopian total transformation of nature and history, however, will be realized through a pragmatic, human-centered, real-life process, that is, the covenant. The essence of this paradoxical method is to start by affirming the value of the real world as it is and the importance of living life in it. At the same time, the covenant focuses on the future ideal world, Participants commit to move the present status quo toward that desired ideal state. This will be done, but by upgrading conditions step by step, bringing improvements while affirming human dignity even of proponents of the status quo, and while accepting human limitations, i.e. not overriding or coercing people to move to a higher level. The divine in the covenant sets the goals, instructs, inspires, and judges, but the human partner must actively participate in the process or the desired outcome will not happen. Living by the covenant translates into reviewing every behavior in life. Each action is to be shaped or reshaped. While fully anchored in the present reality, each behavior should reflect some movement toward the ideal, honoring the ultimate standard. One example in this parsha is lending money to someone who is poor. There is no attempt to end poverty by redistributing property or setting up a socialist economy. The way of the world is that there are poor and they need to be a borrow. But the Torah forbids the lender from lording it over the borrower and turning the loan into social degradation. It also prohibits taking interest, for repaying that increase in the debt will drive the needy deeper into poverty. The lender can take the blanket or cloak of the borrower as collateral, but it must be returned to the borrower every night, so he will not be cold. Now to join the covenant, one must commit one's whole life. The commandments cover ritual and religious behaviors, but they equally regulate ethics, i.e. all behaviors between human beings. Mishpatim, for example, includes prohibition of idolatry, commands to observe Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, to visit the sanctuary three times a year, a requirement to dedicate the firstborn animals to the sanctuary, Instructions not to eat meat that is torn by beasts in the field, meaning not actually slaughtered properly, and not to cook a kid goat in its mother's milk. 
This last, of course, is broadened by the rabbis into a broad prohibition of meat and milk together. There are many more laws, however, regulating parent-child interactions, governing economic relations and commercial behaviors, placing responsibility for torts, for telling truth, for providing equal justice and legal action, for protecting widows and orphans, as well as not exploiting or taking advantage of outsiders' gerim. And contra the prevalent patterns we see in many Jewish communities today, there is no narrowing of the covenantal commitment to some limited ritual areas, even as there are no sweeping utopian steps to bring the kingdom now. Every aspect of society will be transformed in the eventual kingdom of God, so that human life is treated as of infinite value, equal and unique. That condition is a long way from the present standards. So Mishpatim's Book of the Covenant is a case study of the first steps on the covenantal journey. They show at once the acceptance of current culture, which of course also implicates the Torah in present inequities and violations of messianic norms. They also show the initial halting steps toward the future. The Book of the Covenant, then, is a first sketch of how to live by covenantal guidelines when the Israelites settle down in a reclaimed homeland. Now, as is appropriate in addressing a community of ex-slaves just liberated, the first laws deal with the treatment of slaves. But wait, by the covenantal ideal standard, slavery is utterly unacceptable. Benazai taught that every human being is created in the image of God, and this is the Klal Gadol, the core teaching and underlying foundation of all the Torah. According to the Mishnah, being in the divine image means that every human being is of infinite value, that is neither measurable nor fungible by any amount of money. Torah, for example, does not permit compensation payments for a murderer to avoid punishment for killing. Now, the essence of slavery is that the person is turned into property, to be bought and sold. So in the messianic state, there is zero room for slavery. However, in the world when the Torah was given, slavery was a standard fact of life. The covenant starts in the world as it is and begins the process of moving toward the ideal state. The Torah, therefore, does not abolish slavery. It accepts it as the starting point in reality for the redemptive process which will someday end it. The covenant moves, A, to ameliorate slavery in three ways. The Torah puts a time limit of six years on servitude. In the seventh year, every slave goes free. And within the six years of bondage, the slave is free every seventh day. They are prohibited to work on Shabbat, even as all free people are prohibited. Samson Raphael Hirsch, in fact, suggested that the Shabbat law is designed to instill in the indentured servant the recognition that he or she is fundamentally a free person who is temporarily in servitude and not a slave with one day off a week. Finally, the third amelioration, when the slave goes free, they get special payments to tide them over and enable them to begin a free life of economic dignity. The oral law 
continues the process of incremental improvement. The ameliorations included requiring that the food, shelter, and clothing of the servants be equal to the masters, i.e. equal to a free person, and that the labor assignment be not servile or degrading work, but of the same type as free labor. Nevertheless, two demurals must fill in this record. This process of gradual amelioration is started with Hebrew slaves. Gentile slavery is limited only in one way. Violent mistreatment is prohibited. In fact, the Gentile slave is set free if the master injures them by physical abuse. The second demoral is that by starting with acceptance of the standing culture, the Torah is implicated in the violation of its own ultimate standard, the image of God. And if the master fatally injured his slave, he is punished. But if the slave survives for a while, before dying, the master is ultimately exonerated because he's guilty of damaging his property, not of killing a free person. The Book of the Covenant exhibits a similar approach to the status of women. In the Torah's ideal world, the woman is unequivocally an image of God, just as a man is. See the classic verse in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Equality means full standing as a citizen. However, in the contemporary world of the Torah, women were chattels, bought and sold. The Torah does not overthrow that world. It starts the process of amelioration within it. The Torah states that henceforth, only a father can sell his daughter, e.g. general trafficking and making business of selling women is over. See the verses in Exodus chapter 21 of Mishpatim. The father can only sell her, however, to a man who wishes to marry her or marry her to his son and commits to do this. And when she marries, she is given all the rights of a free wife as if she had never been bought. And if the marriage is not entered into, the woman goes free. Now the last two paragraphs are painful to write for a person like me who believes in the divinity and eternity of the Torah. Nevertheless, believers in the divinity of the Torah must uphold their faith with integrity. They must not cover up the record in order to claim that the Torah is somehow not implicated in the human context or beyond criticism or change. The record refutes the ultra-Orthodox version that the Torah is always self-validated, authoritative, and not subject to human judgment. On the contrary, the oral law reflects that God seeks out human judgment and partnership. The problematics of women's status and other such problematics make the oral law the process of interpretation and application revealed at Sinai essential. The oral tradition enables the Torah to be totally present in human culture and context in every generation. At the same time, the Torah has this mechanism to remove the contradiction to its ultimate values and to keep the process and Jewish society and the world moving toward the final state of repair when full human dignity will be realized for all. Now, I've been 
defend the Torah's choice of temporarily incorporating social evils? Out of the belief that the future ideal world is best realized by the covenantal method. Partnership with God and between the generations, working with, via gradualism, compromises, respect for human nature, and the dignity even of opponents, but never ceasing until complete repair is achieved. Now this may be slower and morally compromised, but it will more likely get to the goal. On the other hand, I acknowledge the heavy human cost along the way. Still, I believe that there is a lesser toll and less human suffering in this method than has been inflicted by the more ideologically driven, more universal, more immediate, totally demanding movements for redemption that have proliferated, particularly in recent centuries. There are also less dead ends or systemic outcomes which totally oppress the people. So in conclusion, Mishpatim, the Book of Covenant, sketches the beginning of a long way, which is the shorter way toward Tikkun Olam. Of course, the essential condition for reaching the goal is that the carriers of the covenant never sink into the status quo, never freeze or fossilize the Torah, or never sell out to the local civilization along the way. That is why the covenant is not limited to those who happen to be at Sinai or in the plains of Moab when Moses renewed the covenant. This is an open covenant, inviting in those, quote, standing with us today before Lord our God and those not with us today, that is, those who will take up the task next day, next year, next century, next millennium.